Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inderst, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Stefan Heinrich Simon, the author of Pixelated Madness, The Construction of Mental Illnesses and Psychiatric Institutions in Video Games from 2023. The publisher is Verlag Werner Hülsbusch in Germany. Before we jump right in, though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or the audio platform of your choice. You are more than welcome to leave feedback or questions on Spotify, too. Also, feel free to share this episode with your friends or wherever you see fit. And now, back to the show. The relationship between madness and video games has been notoriously tense. In an abundance of titles, stereotypes, and stigmatizations can be found not only regarding the mentally ill, but also psychiatry as a discipline. Sequences of electroshock therapy come to mind, mutated patients, and homicidal maniacs. But where do we go from here? And what lies beyond the criticism of how mental illnesses are portrayed in video games? In this dissertation, game studies scholar Stefan Simon focuses on a small selection of contemporary video games to present detailed qualitative analysis and ultimately develop a typology of madness in video games that can serve as an instructive basis for further study. And now I'm more than happy to say hello to Stefan. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. About myself? Well, uh, I'm a game studies scholar from Germany, or in the more broader sense, a media studies scholar. And I work at the Philips University in Marburg. At this point, I am also a chief editor and host of the weekly podcast Studying Pixels, where we talk about 
game studies and video game culture with my good friend and colleague, Dan Hughes. And yes, I just recently published my PhD dissertation. That was, uh, I would say, a good five years of work. <laughs> now it's finally done and published, and I'm excited to tell the world about it a little bit. Hmm. Of course, we have to check for your Ludo Street credibility. Please tell us what's your favorite game and the one or even the ones you're playing right now. Favorite game is always quite difficult because there are just so many good video games in this world. But um, I think with without too much contemplation, I would probably settle on Final Fantasy X. I know it's not like necessarily a fan favorite but it's certainly the final fantasy game that had the biggest impact on me um during formative years of my life it gave me a lot of strength and comfort uh, whereas at the moment i'm actually just playing uh, legend of zelda tears of the kingdom or i'm actually playing it in japanese so it's zelda no densetsu that sounds very authentic to my uh, to my german ears <laughs> oh thank you very much i'm practicing uh, japanese like on a daily basis <laughs> before we start our deep dive please tell our listeners how did you come to write pixelated madness in the first place well Uh, I guess I have always been interested in the study of marginalized subjectivities. So I find it super important that as a society, we engage with those perspectives that we kind of exclude, that we see as not normal or outside of um, of the social participation. The, this, of course, relates to a lot of um, big societal axes of conflict, such as uh, race, class, gender, uh, but also disabilities, age, and uh, a lot more components that come into play here. When I had completed my master's degree, I was thinking, in which direction um, is, uh, or in which direction I could go that seems to be quite promising within video game studies. Because obviously there is a lot of research, for example, on the matter of race and gender. And I'm not saying that there's nearly enough. Of course, we need to work on these fields as well. But I felt like I could really contribute in the domain of uh, mental illnesses and mental health. Because there is a lot on other media, but video games specifically... Uh, there's just so much still to discover, especially how video games as games construct mental illness or, or madness. And that's why I kind of landed on this subject. Hmm. Now, let us start at the beginning, because madness is a key concept in your work. And right at the beginning, we read that instead of a precise definition, you prefer to think uh, of the term in different contexts. Why was that more fruitful uh, for your project or your work? Indeed, yeah. Madness in the title, it, it can cause a bit of irritation, I suppose, because madness, um, if you hear it for the first time, you might have more associations in the direction of it being an insult if you call people mad, right? Um, this is really not how it's intended, of course. I'm not trying to insult anyone. Um, it is, in fact, the case that there are increasing um, desires to reclaim that term madness. There's, for example, a mad pride parade where people go take to the streets and they say, we are mad, we identify as mad, and we want to be acknowledged as such without necessarily being seen as defective or ill, right? Um, I settled on madness primarily because of its 
abstract nature because it is a term that does not necessarily immediately evoke the association with psychiatry, with medicine, and with diagnoses, right? Uh, commonly, when we use terms like mental illness or psychiatric disorder, mental disorder, and so on, we think of things like depression, psychosis, schizophrenia, maybe, right? A lot of very specific diagnostic terminology that uh, appears to say a lot about the content of what we're talking about, whereas madness keeps it much more vague. And this is fruitful because video games and the way that they portray madness, they don't necessarily stick to diagnostic manuals within uh, psychiatric discourse, but they can be a lot more associative and symbolic and that is simply why I feel like keeping the definition of what madness is vague mm. can be productive for such a project. Yeah, that's uh, that's rather interesting. So let's break that down a little bit more. Even what then follows <clears throat> in your book is the classification of the term into three different contexts just indicated. I would like to ask you um, that we go through and discuss these together for our listeners then. The first sub-item is entitled Madness as Mental Illness in psychiatric discourse yes exactly because if we consider madness to be this abstract concept then we can't really uh we can't really think about it that well because it is so abstract but what we can do is we can look we can check how madness manifests in different discourses in society and uh, of course psychiatric discourse is certainly the most dominant and biggest one in uh, modern society. And I'm trying to describe how psychiatric discourse produces knowledge about madness, and it does so in the form of mental illness. Uh, this means that it is, for example, a field that um, is strongly focused on empirical research. So whatever is considered to be true or um, an insight of value within psychiatric discourse has to be testable in an empirical experiment, testing, or research. It is very, you could say, empirically positivistic in that sense, right? Uh, or empiricist, because you need to be able to prove what you say in experimentations or quantitative research. It is also, by the way, not the goal of psychiatric uh, discourse to find out some sort of higher level truth about madness or reason, but instead the primary goal is to define criteria for diagnoses and to test means of treatment that can be applied without contradiction. So as long as things work and they ultimately help individuals, because that's the goal, right? A psychiatric institution you want to, or a, a therapist, you need to be able to go there and describe your problem and their job is to help you as an individual to work with that. Um, that's the goal. They don't necessarily have to develop some sort of higher level philosophical idea about, you know, the nature uh, of madness. And this is, of course, very different from, from other kind of understandings. Maybe just as a brief afterthought here, I don't mean to um, oversimplify this because, of course, there is a lot of philosophical contemplation within psychiatric discourse and a lot of reflection. And there is also a vast strand of modern um, 
social psychiatry that very much tries to incorporate various different perspectives and not limit themselves to just having a biomedical focus. Um, but these are just basically like core elements of psychiatric discourse. Right. Yeah. Well, after that, you move over to what you call madness as a social and political phenomenon. What is this all about then? Well, this is pretty much what I described at the beginning as madness being a like a conflict axis in our society. Um, this was really prominent in the 1960s and 70s because um, in that time, sociology was really at the forefront of investigating or inquiring into the nature of madness and what it does to people to be, for example, um, brought into psychiatric institutions. This is no longer the case because uh, sociology and political science and these fields, let's say the social sciences, they have retreated uh, significantly from this domain and left it more to um, psychiatry and psychiatric research, to the field of, let's say, medicine in the broad sense, to look into this. Uh, but it's still there. Uh, this madness as a social and political phenomenon means uh, to not necessarily look at specific conditions and how to treat them. It means rather to look at, okay, so what does it mean for a person to be diagnosed with a mental illness, for example? Uh, what does it mean um, when people are stigmatized for having uh, a mental illness? But it also means what does... What role does a thing like stigmatization play within psychiatry? Because it's not just the people that are being diagnosed that are affected by stigmatization, but also the institutions themselves, even the professionals. You might be aware that there's just this uh, this idea that you know uh, someone who's a psychotherapist that they might kind of like read your mind, you know, and you might feel a little bit awkward speaking to them because you think they constantly analyze you. Um, like these sorts of stigmata they can be quite problematic, especially when it comes to means of treatment. I think things such as um, uh, psychopharmacological medication is uh, highly stigmatized, as well as things like electroshock therapy and such things that are still applied at, uh, in, in, in Germany, at least, and I think all over the world even. And it ca that can cause a, a, a big problem when people are in situations that they need help and maybe they're their family doctor recommends them to see a therapist, but maybe they might be hesitant because they are just, they've got these stigmata in their, at the back of their minds. So these are questions that are basically not directly addressed by psychiatry. That's why they are more part of this, let's say the social sciences or the social and or the societal and political perspective on madness. Yeah. Well, finally then, your, your third sub-chapter Uh, madness in media, <clears throat> sorry, media and culture. And I think that's the one chapter where readers are most likely to immediately realize, aha, so now he's pivoting to digital games. But is that the case? Question kind of, yeah, it is kind of the case. Yeah, I'm working my way from the abstract theoretical idea of madness up to uh, actually looking at video games. And um, the aspect of madness in media and culture that's basically a chapter that goes into the state of research in the domain of um, films television but also literature and art a little bit just to understand the let's say cultural history of madness because that again is a different thing it's different it's separate 
from um, how mental illness works within psychiatry, it is also different from how stigmatization works because uh, these forms of media that we talk about when we think of films or even video games, they do not have to be um, made with the purpose in mind to destigmatize, for example, or to educate people on these things, but they, of course, have their own interests as a media as well. They want to tell engaging stories. They want to sell lots of copies and be profitable. And these are all also legitimate interests that work with, that's, that just is how the field of uh, video games and media production works. So um, it's the chapter in which I take these factors into account also to assess what kind of research we already have on uh, films. For example, there are lots of different tropes that have been developed in the context of films and literature that we can maybe use to inform our perspective on video games as well. Mm. As a huge fan of close and wide playing, I was naturally fired up to find the pair of terms in your methods chapter. Uh, perhaps, and I say this deliberately without winking, there are still some among our listeners who are not yet very familiar with this approach in digital game studies. Yeah, you've actually really inspired me in that sense, I have to say. <laughs> you first. <laughs> You've inspired me because uh, you engage quite in a quite detailed fashion with close and wide playing. And I think um, that is really important since game studies are kind of still wiggling around to find, um, I would say, sufficiently precise um, methodological frameworks for the way they operate. Um, and uh, close and wide playing... One of the big advantages here is that it's strongly informed from literary studies. And from the study of literature, of course, uh, comes a long tradition of applying and developing this methodological framework. So it has its complications when being adapted to video games, but also there is a lot there already. And close reading, for those that, are, that have never heard of these terms, I would say, um, I would describe it as a focus strictly on the text instead of things such as the authorial uh, intent of uh, a company or the media effects. Instead, we just look at the text. In this case, we look at the game as a game. We select particular sequences, we play them repeatedly, and we develop an interpretation that we then throw at the material again to see whether it is affirmed or not. And we do it again to test maybe there are alternative interpretations that we can still get out of this. So we engage in a process of reading video games that is technically endless and always allows us to kind of extract new perspectives and reapply them to the game. That's how I would describe uh, close playing, whereas wide playing brings the contextual factors into uh, the mix. So it means... Um, maybe after or during playing the game and engaging with it in a very close uh, reading fashion, we might want to look at the production context. Who funded the game? Where, what, where's the developer team from? Um, how was the game received? We could look at um, field documents. We could look at developer diaries, reviews, forum posts, and such things. So basically everything that surrounds the game And we can take that, this information into account as well to integrate it into our interpretation of the game. And hopefully, 
in combining both close reading as well as wide reading, we can develop a nuanced interpretation of video games. Yeah. And you also um, developed a very interesting typology that plays a major part in your analysis. Uh, then, uh, what exactly is this about? What is it for? And how did you work with it in uh, in your book? Then, because this is this seems to be the the very core of your uh, of your analysis now. Indeed, it is. Yeah, it is the heart of my PhD, and um, the fact that it even exists, I would say, um, I definitely want to thank uh, Arno Görgen, a good friend and colleague, uh, for this, because we worked on some aspects of it together, and um, he strongly informed and inspired my work as well. Um, the typology, the idea of a typology as such, is pretty old. It actually comes from the German sociologist Max Weber. The idea is. Um, that instead of uh, developing a like a classification where we would say we have categories and then we assign reality into these categories, we go the other way around. We start at empirical reality and then we kind of condense and extract aspects and we exaggerate them. We exaggerate them into ideal types. And these ideal types they don't necessarily have to occur within reality as such, but instead we can use them to understand reality a little bit better. And what I've ultimately done is I've looked at a handful of video games. It was a, actually it was around, I think, um, if, don't let me, don't let me say anything wrong here. I think about 18 in total, but then only five, like in a small condensed sample to develop uh five main types and 11 subtypes uh, to describe Madison video games. And these five main types, they are really abstract. They are basically the highest level of abstraction that I could get to. So they're really broad. And the subtypes, they are much more specific and condensed. Or, for example, they could bring together various different types and condense them into one specific thing. So that would be the subtypes. Um... So how, hmm, how, how hard was this actually? Because I'm just trying to get a, a better feeling for, for, your, for your actual work. And it seems to me this is a tremendous effort of work and a really a, a great achievement, a great, yeah, a really great achievement. I was very even stunned while reading it because it's so, it's actually, it's so good, you know? Oh, thank you very much. So how would you, <laughs> um, maybe we can talk about it a little bit more about it. Um, and you, because you were also mentioning that you were uh, working, I mean, five years. This is, yeah. this is a lot of work, right? It is. I mean, the five years, of course, there was a section of those years that went into just developing the theory since I wanted to kind of find a productive angle on madness for media studies and for video game studies, which is different from taking it from other fields. Um, but when it comes to the actual typology and the analyses, I would say that um, the selection of material was not that difficult because I've had a good insight on the field already. And I've had like, you know, lists already of video games that might, that I might want to consider, but ultimately the analyses took an eternity. Every game that is listed in this uh, thesis, I worked on every game for months, um, even though they're sometimes short games, but playing them over and over and uh, taking screenshots, taking notes, um, 
searching in the smallest depths of these video games for some specific types and how they intersect with others. This is uh, something that really took a lot of time. So the analysis, I kind of underestimated it at the beginning. I thought like, you know, I, I know these games. I know video games. I can do that. Uh, but ultimately, it took much longer than I anticipated because games are just so rich in uh, analytical potential. There's just so much there that we can go into. So let's get uh, meta for a minute and zoom out a bit. How do you see the current state of digital game studies in Germany? Because you're familiar enough with the, with the, with the game, the game, to chat a bit here. <laughs> and what are the topics that perhaps the next generation or maybe the current generation can or even should, uh, focus, uh, should focus on? Well, the current state of digital game studies in Germany, I would say, is um, a very enjoyable bubble. <laughs> I, uh, I really enjoy being a part of it. Uh, there are so many different approaches and perspectives that are currently developing. Also, at least in my perception, it might be that I'm biased because I am from Germany, but it appears to me that there is a lot of games research that, that comes from Germany. Like, it's not just a... When I say a bubble, then I don't mean like a tiny bubble in a big ocean, but it is a legitimately contributing bubble to international game studies uh, as well. So I see tremendous potential, especially in this close uh, in this close knit network of people that are in touch with one another, that see each other regularly at conferences and exchange their perspectives, developing their perspectives in conversation with one another. Whereas where the field might go into the in the future i really i really couldn't possibly say i think that we've kind of reached the point within game studies where a lot of the big media ontology is some like exists and like these broad conversations about video games and now we sort of see a little bit of um let's say specialization within different areas. So for example, me, like someone who just engages with madness in video games for five years, like such a tightly focused uh, research project or others that really focus on uh, history in video games. And I think we're, we're currently in this phase where we develop very specialized perspectives. Mm. Yeah. Well, Stefan, we've taken up a lot of your time. So please tell us, what are you working on right now? And of course, what will you be uh, playing next, uh, aside from Zelda, of course? Uh, first of all, I'm just so glad that this PhD is out and that I can uh, look into the future or look, look forward to finding a new subject. Because this, like working with a subject such as Madness can be quite taxing. It's, uh, uh, these games are often very uh, dire and creepy. And um, that is why I thought for my next big step forward, I want to look into something nice. And uh, <laughs> yeah, are we're we talking about the, the role of, of chocolate candy. <laughs> yes, for example, this is actually not a bad, a bad idea because I'm going to look into coziness in video games. Oh, That's yeah. what I'm currently I'm, what I'm currently looking into. I'm writing and publishing a couple of articles with colleagues on the matter. And uh, I want to just analyze, uh, approach and understand, the significance of coziness, so how games manage to make us feel safe, how they give us an environment of abundance where we can find refuge from the political crises or the individual crises 
of our lives. And I think that's an important function. It goes beyond just simply escapism, as in we just simply escape and come back as before. But instead, I think it gives us a space to also process things and engage with um, more intricate matters in a safe environment. So this is something that I'm really curious uh, about, which is why I'm going to look into coziness in video games. As for the game that I'm going to play next, I guess that must that has to be Baldur's Gate 3 because it just recently came out and I'm still waiting for the PS5 release. And uh, then I'm looking forward to play it, especially in co-op. It's supposed to be a lot of fun. Right, yeah. So that sounds like a great, and of course, it sounds like a Hygge project. So, yes, <laughs> Hygge. <laughs> uh, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And so all that's left to say is take care and goodbye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. So, dear listeners, I hope you liked this episode. If you are an author and or an editor in the field of digital game studies yourself and want to talk about your latest publication or research, please do not hesitate to contact me under rudolf.indust at googlemail.com. Alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Indust almost everywhere. And again, please share this episode where you see fit See you in a bit.